this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Christian B. Long about his book, The Imaginary Geography of Hollywood Cinema, 1960-2000. The book was published in 2017 by Intellect. In his book, Christian examines American films of the late 20th century and how they are often built around specific locations, both real and imagined. We talk about Burt Reynolds and his use of the South for locales, how Disney decided where to set its live-action films, as well as the role of the suburbs in movies. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Christian Long. Hi, Christian. Thanks. Hi. Thanks for having me. So we're here to discuss your book, The Imaginary Geography of Hollywood Cinema, 1960 to 2000. Um, But before we go more in depth with the book, I always like to know a little bit more about the author. And so if you could give me a little bit of your background, maybe educational or, or where you are now in your career. And then we can start to talk a little bit also about your uh, writing experience. Okay, uh, well, um, I'm from a little working class suburb outside of Chicago called Carpentersville, Illinois. And, uh, I'm a college dropout. I failed out of the University of Iowa. And uh, so in, after doing that, uh, I worked in a multiplex cinema for 10 years. Um, and I also worked in a public library for four or five years. And kind of went, the main job that I saved up all my money to go back to school, uh, I worked at a place called Northwest Structural Steel where I was a welder, fitter, helper, uh, pretty much did everything in the, in the steel plant because I was the newest guy there. Uh, and I also ended up working as a draftsman. And uh, I even cleaned up after the boss's dog when it would poop on the floor in the office. Um, but after working in steel for four or five years, uh, one summer I almost lost my, my left thumb when a thousand pounds fell on my hand. Uh, and I'm left-handed, so that would have been a, a drag. And then after I healed from that, um, we were moving a beam just not, not very far, and the clip that was holding the beam broke, and that fell on top of me, um, on my leg, and I decided maybe I should uh, go back to school. Uh, however, Sounds like you, you were getting a hint. Yes. Uh, um, but when you fail out of university, other universities don't want to take you, uh, so I had a little bit of a hard time going back to school. Um, I ended up going to a junior college for a semester, Harper College in Palatine, Illinois. And then eventually I went to Illinois State University where I did my BA. Uh, 
I discovered that I didn't like teaching high school kids when I did my student teaching, so I figured maybe I would try teaching adults, so um, I went to graduate school. So I moved to New Hampshire, where I went to the University of New Hampshire, and did my, my MA. And there I met my future wife, and she was a year ahead of me at UNH, and she got accepted to Vanderbilt to do her PhD. Uh, so I decided I would apply at Vanderbilt as well, and um, somehow I was also accepted. So I ended up doing my PhD at, at Vanderbilt, which is probably the last place I would have expected to go. Uh, finishing my PhD, my wife got offered a job at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. Uh, so we packed up the dogs and cats and all our stuff, and we moved. Um, and we had a great time there. Unfortunately, um, the earthquakes kind of made all of my work disappear. Uh, and it became very difficult to live there. Our house was deemed unsafe to live in, although we still lived there for six or seven months after they said that. Uh, and my wife ended up finding a job at the University of Queensland uh, in Brisbane, in Australia. So now I live in Australia. Um, I don't have an academic job. I have a, a boring office job. I work in a graduate school at UQ. Although right now, when I say that, I'm, I'm currently a visiting professor at the University of Vienna. Uh, I'm teaching a class basically on my book, um, and I don't know if they know that I actually don't have an academic position, and I'm not saying anything uh, until we're done. Um, so that's at the moment. In the next couple of months, I'm in Vienna, and then I'll go back to Australia, and I'll go back to my office job, which I think is very preferable to working in academia, to tell you the truth. Well, we're talking about geography. You just mm -hmm. presented an incredible geography of your career starting in the Midwest and New England and then the South and then <laughs> Europe and, and Australia and New Zealand. So you really have been all over the world. Now, I was a bit of a late starter because I actually, I had never left the central time zone uh, until I was about 26 with some rare exceptions, like to be in the upper peninsula of Michigan, which is actually the Eastern time zone. Uh, so I, I was very much a, a working class kid who you know, we couldn't afford to go anywhere. Uh, so now I feel like I'm really lucky uh, that uh, I just I go all around the world now. It's weird. So is there an aspect about your degree, your your educational work, your academic work that pointed towards film? Um. Well, the the first class I took, and it was I was just taking it as a. Uh, foundations class when I was at Illinois State was an introduction to film studies class and one of the movies we watched in it was Hollis Frampton's Nostalgia um, and it just blew my mind <laughs> and so uh, that was when I, I got into to film studies that it was something beyond just kind of standard narrative film and then in the same semester I took a, a geography class again just a required class um, and the, the professor who taught it like had pictures of himself swimming in the Amazon uh, and just doing weird kind of fieldwork type things. Um, and I had grown up reading atlases. And so kind of seeing somebody who I imagined their job was like doing atlas things. Um, but actually it was much more, um, he was a human geographer, so there was a much more kind of hands-on human interaction that I found really fascinating. And so those two things kind of followed me through my undergraduate I didn't do geography as a PhD because, at least in the U.S., I would have had to do quants, and I'm not that great at math. Uh, so I just kind of do a poor man's version of geography and kind of spatial thinking, and I hold on to that, the film studies part of it. 
Yeah, I I always think that my opinion is that anybody who uh, goes to college, if they have the opportunity in their undergrad work to try to take a film, a basic film studies course, because I did the same thing. Of course, when I was going to school, there was no, from my undergrad, there were no VHS, there were no video recordings. We were actually seeing films that were shown on projectors, and it was interesting to get a chance to see a movie that, at the time, you had no chance of seeing any other way. It had to. I still remember the, the movie I can the, that I saw that that really hit me was Intolerance, you know, one mm. of D.W. Griffiths. And of course, I'd never, you know, there'd been no opportunity to see it beforehand. So, you're right about how film studies courses can be so interesting to get you someplace that you never thought about as far as uh, movies are concerned and get a better sense of what's available. And I think even now, the the class I'm teaching right now, it's just the first movie we watched was The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1954. Mm-hmm. And um, that's basically another world to the students, even though theoretically it's available to them. Uh, they're not going to have watched it. And so I, I do feel like one of the things that uh, film studies can also offer is uh, anybody can go down to the local theater and watch whatever's coming out this week. But I think one thing can, film studies can do, it brings intolerance to you which is a fascinating movie in its own right, but also it gives you something you wouldn't normally get. Uh, I think that's really important. Plus, nowadays, being able to see... You're right. I mean, you ha- we now have access to all these, but it doesn't mean you're actually going to watch them, so you're absolutely right. Uh, you have to sometimes get pushed or, or <laughs> pushed into the right direction, so to speak. So I can totally agree with you that uh, mm-hmm. even nowadays, having access doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to take advantage of it, but it is great. I say this in just about every podcast where I talk about the ability to see films that um, in the past would have been almost impossible to see. So that that's very useful. And so I can see how um, this helped you in, 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 in some ways as far as uh, your, the availability of things. Mm-hmm. So is this your first book or have you, what other kinds of writing have you, have you done other kinds of writing already before this? Uh, well, I have about, I don't know, maybe about 20 articles and book chapters that I've done, and I, I co-edited a collection with a friend from graduate school, Jeff Many, who's at Oklahoma State now. Um, and actually, the job I had for the first five years we lived in Australia, um, I, and I also did it when we lived in New Zealand and when I was at Vanderbilt, um, I've, I spent a lot of time actually teaching engineers and scientists how to write. Um, and that's really kind of what, I, what I've done to make money um, as a job, I guess. And that really comes out of working in a steel plant. And it was it was kind of a joke that the guys on the floor wouldn't talk to the engineers, and so they made me talk to them. And, it, and so they would always say, Christian, tell Kaz that I don't want to do that. And he would just be standing right there. Um, but I do have, I think engineers are a really fascinating group of people to teach because they're a lot easier to teach writing to than arts students because you just treat it like a machine. And you say, if you change your inputs to do X and Y, you will have a better output and people will like what you write better. It will be more easy to understand. Uh, so my, kind of my, my background in writing is kind of instrumental and kind of technical writing. Um, and it's gotten even more so. Uh, I was working with... Um, professors and stuff writing up multi-million dollar grant proposals. Um, that's kind of what I what I think of as writing. And then what I do is kind of just fun as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, have, I have no 
promotion writing on what I have to write. So I just write what I want to write. Well, that's a good thing. It's always good, even if you're writing for a specific purpose. I mean, you know, if you have to write that you do what you want to write. So it's even better when you can pretty much choose what you want to write about. So what led you to what what brought you to the to, to decide that this was a book you wanted to write? I mean, obviously, you've mentioned that you had, uh, um, you know, obviously film, but then also you have the geography part as far as some of your mm -hmm. academic work. So what led you to decide that this was a useful topic or a useful way to combine the two? Well, originally, uh, I, I thought of it as a project that I, I, I called it the World Atlas of American Cinema. And I, I actually wanted to, to write an atlas. And this was when Google Maps first uh, started up and you could start making your own maps. I said, well, this would be really cool if I could do a literal atlas, maybe go decade by decade and so on. Um, it, maybe it was a little bit too big of a project. And I also discovered that it was, it was neither fish nor fowl when it came to writing up postdoc applications and stuff like that. Because if it's just an atlas, there's no critical component. So that's not really a postdoc. And I would say, no, no, no. I want to have critical essays in it as well. And they would say, well, what's the point of the atlas then? And so I ended up narrowing it down. And I, I just said, well, I don't want to kind of just do my tricks to some movies. But I rather want to want to say something about movies that I wouldn't expect to. And so that's why I started just mapping where movies take place. I'm really literal-minded that I just accept that the movie says, this is Brooklyn, even though it's obvious that Jackie Chan is in Vancouver. And so I said, well, I just want to see if I take a step back from all of these movies, what do they tell me I need to say about them? And so that's why I think the, the chapters in the book are a little bit, they seem scattered, but I think that's because I just let what the evidence looked like tell me what to do. Was there a particular... Was there a particular reason you decided to start with 1960, or was it just a matter that you knew you had to, you were going to have to limit in some way, shape, or form? Otherwise, it would be impossible to really pull together. So, did 1960 particularly was that important for that to be the starting point? Yeah, I mean, originally the the date was 1927. I wanted to just handle sound cinema in the 20th century, and when that proved to be too much. Um, I think really it ended up just being a round number that I guess 1967 or 68 might have made more sense because then we can just talk about the new Hollywood and move forward. But in the end, I thought, well, 1960, it's a round number. And it also gave me access to the, the Disney live action movies. And it gave me a little something to play against. There's, there's a little, there's a seven or eight year period where there's some movies that aren't new Hollywood. They're still kind of remnants of the studio system and it gave me kind of a foil to play against the kind of larger part of the narrative which is post new hollywood so when we talk about geography of hollywood <clears throat> and you and of course it's the imaginary geography of hollywood right. i think of geography in other uh, mediums specifically most likely in literature where it's not unusual for uh authors fiction authors to create, sometimes create entire worlds or, or entire cities. Sometimes they take a city that already exists and bend it to their own um, way. And then, of course, there's some who uh, sort of combine the two. 
Um, thinking, for example, of Stephen King, who likes to set most of his uh, stories in Maine, but he creates cities and in, in towns in Maine rather than using actual ones, and then sometimes does use yeah. actual ones. So, how does what what you're trying to talk about when it relates to Hollywood? How does this compare, say, to to other forms of of geo, you know, with this whole issue of the use of geography in media? Well. An article that I wrote earlier, and it's in a project that I'm still working on, uh, I, t I talk about, uh, it's called Infrastructure After the Zombie Apocalypse. And I think what's interesting about literary representations of locations and kind of geographical information is that that kind of stuff doesn't show up on accident. It's, 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 it's placed there. They actually had to write it. They had to edit it. The editor had to be cool with it and so on. And so I think it's quite pointed. Uh, I think the kind of you know, Lovecraftian Stephen King locations, um, in terms of the film, I would just say, yeah, this is in small town Maine. That kind of doesn't really matter what town it is. It's not in Portland, so we can just say it's small town Maine. Uh, films, and I say this right in the first item paragraph of the book, is that there's something there. Uh, you can't have a movie. I mean, you can, but Hollywood films don't do it. That just takes place, takes place floating in space. But there's always just something behind this woman who is talking and saying something. And so the, the kind of literalization that you get of locations and films is in, in some ways incidental to the narrative and accidental, but I think that's what makes it kind of fun to look at, uh, is that sure, it's just a, a lot that they say this is a New York street, but I just say, okay, it's a New York street. What else can we learn from it? Um, whereas I think literature, um, and here I guess I show my, my stripes as somebody who does come from literature, I think literature is far more complex and complicated and hard to deal with um, compared to film. Well, yeah, the visual aspect all by itself <laughs> makes that, you know, different. Um, so um, in your review, and obviously you said you were thinking you had originally thought about going back even farther. Have you been able to tell where, where in the film, where, from, from study, where do you see the geography, obviously probably always, but I mean, where in your mind did you start to, to begin to notice this when you were when you were films? And obviously it's every film had to have been filmed someplace, as you pointed out, except for, you know, some science fiction films, which are completely done on a on a sound stage with blue screen, but or green screen, mm -hmm. but um, like you say, most films had to be filmed someplace. Uh, did you actually look at uh, some of the, you know, when studios started creating their own sets that were supposed to represent areas? Uh, is that something that 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 caught your attention? There's a map, and it shows up quite frequently on like film Twitter and people's film tumblers. And it's, uh, it's from Paramount, and it has a, a map of California. And every, every location in California has a, a country or, or a different location given to it. So like Arrowhead Lake stands in for the Alps. And uh, parts of the desert, uh, you know, Mojave could be the Sahara. And so Paramount, quite early, was already thinking one of the advantages of moving to Hollywood is that there's a huge variety of kind of geographic forms that you can use to expand the locations of where your movies might be set. Certainly you can build a set. It's cheap. 
it's it's faster. Uh, you have a lot more control, but I also think that there's, uh, and I, I use the word advisedly, there's a realism to, to going out there and doing a location shoot uh, that becomes a selling point. And California just offers so much uh, that, uh, and I think that, that map really kind of caught my eye uh, as, oh, well, they, obviously this is planned. Uh, and there's all of this within kind of a one-day drive. And so it becomes, it, it expands the, the possibilities for, for the stories I want to tell so that they can take place elsewhere and they can give a credible vision of the world. I think they still end up being in a fairly limited number of spaces, which is important and interesting in its own right. But that, that it was clear to the, the, the suits that multiple locations can stand in for multiple other locations and we can use those in interesting ways um, is, is clear from the second that they've moved back to California. Of course, we see this nowadays where there are certain cities and areas of the world, particularly North America, that have become, um, you know, focus, you know, centers for films that uh, tend to be, and we see this exact example of, of, of a particular area supposedly filling in for multiple areas, including some areas that are actually real areas, not as opposed to just saying, you know, out in the desert. Instead, we're saying we're in New York City, even though we're not in New York City um, and things like that. I mean, I can think of Vancouver, for example, has become or for many years now. Um, I remember you know, the X-Files was filmed in Vancouver. And part right. of the reason they did it was because it, what I read was they could use the, Vancouver just happened to be an area where you could create different um, climates and, and, and areas that could sort of fill in as needed. Right. There's that. And then there's also, depending on the strength of the Canadian dollar, you can you get a lot more bang for your buck. Uh, right. which is, uh, is not to be sniffed at. The one that the story I always remember is that uh, Toronto uh, tried to get someone to um, work for them so that they could be more credibly Chicago-like because people were using Toronto to stand in for Chicago so much. Um, and I think that that's kind of, it's a fun game uh, that you can, when you, when you see your, your hometown being another hometown, it's fascinating the the Matthew McConaughey, Kate um, Hudson movie, Fool's Gold, was filmed in Brisbane, uh, a large part of it, including like, like the office where my boss worked in, uh, and the boss that made me quit the job that was at QUT. And so it's weird to see the Chancellery building playing City Hall of Key West, uh, or the old government house of Queensland standing in as a, a museum in Key West. And so I think it's those moments where if you know it, the movie means something else entirely, um, but if you just take the movie at its word, uh, it's just, you know, a nice looking sandstone building that sure, that's Key West. Okay. And it, it kind of, I think it colors uh, our geographical imagination of the world in ways that I would, I would hope people will continue to, to press on. Yeah, I can. I, there's a number of examples. I, I grew up and lived most of my life in Cleveland, Ohio. And over the last 20 years or so, maybe a little longer now, Cleveland has has had some reasonably 
well-known movies that have done filming there. But then, of course, there's the opposite. The best example I can think of is the baseball movie Major League, which is supposed to be about mm-hmm. the Cleveland Indians, and yet most of it was the, the ballpark and everything else was filmed in Milwaukee. And yeah. so you, you you do see bits and pieces of, you know, um, second unit footage in Cleveland, but most of it's in Milwaukee, including the ballpark, which they didn't even change the radio station logo on the clock in the, in the in the ballpark. Yeah, except so it's, WPNJ on it, and that's right. Get Packer games on that. <laughs> so it's pretty obvious that it's not Cleveland. But uh, then there's the opposite, where, like you say, um, they film in one area that's supposed to represent another area, and I, you know, a couple of examples of that too. That, like you say, I think it's a matter. My favorite of all time was Air Force One, in which the opening scene where they're uh, going to grab this uh, terrorist, they end up. Um, Landing on Severance Hall in Cleveland, Ohio, which is the uh, classical music hall for the Cleveland Orchestra. And like you say, no one would notice unless you happen to be from Cleveland. But when I saw it, and I immediately recognized it. It was one of those things is, okay, this is supposed to be Russia, but it, it's, it's in Cleveland, <laughs> Ohio. So I can see the great Cleveland movies, though. Uh, I mean, The Fortune Cookie, um, You Can't Beat a Jack Lennon, Walter Matthau movie. That's a, that's a Cleveland movie. And uh, American Splendor. Right. Uh, both of which I think kind of use the, the, I would say the American imagination of the vibe of Cleveland really well. Right. Um, and I think that's one thing that, um, that it's like, a, and I, I say this is my, my mother's family name is Jenna Bardo, So I come by my Italian American um, culture, I guess, honestly, uh, how much of the kind of fetishization of kind of mafia mythos is legit and how much of it is learned from movies. Uh, and so we kind of know about particular cities and the kind of people who live there. And I think movies kind of teach us in a particular way. Um, and actually, it's a, one of the chapters in the book about medium-sized cities. I, I try and gesture at that. But there's much more going on. When you say, like, the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra, that's one of those things that it, it's kind of simultaneously funny, but it's obviously true. It's a symphony orchestra, but we don't we don't associate Cleveland with that. And part of that blame falls on kind of media productions that just kind of say, eh, post-industrial, the river lit on fire at the end. Right. So let's talk a little bit more in depth of the book now. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've pretty well laid the groundwork. Um, you've got an introduction, which is pretty long, you know, it's pretty long all by itself. Where is Hollywood cinema? But then you get into particular types of films and particular eras, areas, excuse me. Um, most of the book, obviously, you, you tend to, to go with the United States, although your final chapter does get outside of, uh, of, of, of this area. But let's start right at the beginning where you talk about Burt Reynolds films and, and their importance to uh, how the South was suddenly being viewed in the uh, 1970s, at the round of the 1970s, where uh, suddenly the South was becoming more important economically not even related specifically to films, but mm-hmm. uh, so now suddenly um, his films in particular started to take advantage of more interest in the South. Where, how, how do you see Burt Reynolds' films being so important as far as this is concerned? Well, I think this chapter is, is the best example of the, the method that, that I use. Uh, I, have, I have no particular feelings about Burt Reynolds other than uh, other than like I had seen the Cannonball Run movies and Smoking the Bandit and stuff like that. But when I made maps of all the hits and 
Then I started making other maps of are they set now or are they set in the past. I started seeing that there there was a real kind of cultural imaginary that just said the U.S. South is the past. And the U.S. South, uh, especially when you leave, you realize this, the U.S. South is associated with like That's where racism is. Uh, and it's much more complicated than that. So I, I did live in Nashville for five years, which is what I used to think of was very Southern, but it, it is not according to all the other people who live there. Um, and I started to see that there's a, there's a more complex picture. And there's certainly, there's a, there's a group of kind of really good histories that kind of I bring in throughout uh, the chapter, like Bruce Shulman and, and Cobb, that talk about that the, the South you know, contains multitudes. And I think what, what makes Burt Reynolds really interesting is that he's, his movies are the only movies that are set in the contemporary South. Like the, only, like the only ones that were big hits and making money that lots of people would have seen. Uh, and so the story that I, that I use in there is Paul Young, who was my dissertation supervisor, talks about how in 1977 he was really disappointed that Star Wars wasn't playing at his movie theater in, in Iowa because Smokey and the Bandit was playing. And then you look at the numbers and you say, of course, Smokey and the Bandit was playing. It was making tons of money and Burt Reynolds was a big, big star. Uh, that's what you want in your movie theater. And so I, I, looking at all of that, I just said, well, why was Burt Reynolds a star? Uh, there's a lot of kind of charming, handsome, strapping guys making movies. And it seemed to me an underappreciated aspect of his appeal was actually where his movies were set. That if you're reading the news every day and you're dealing with kind of the deindustrialization of the Northeast and the Midwest, um, and you're hearing about the South being important, and then you, you look in the newspaper and you see that there's a movie set there, that that's just it's just that little extra push that might make you want to go see it and kind of take an interest in it. And so you can watch him throughout more than a decade. His movies are almost uniformly set in the South. Uh, he, he gets out of there. Maybe it's he does one for me and then one for for them. But they're set throughout the South in a way that is very purposeful. And so we get not the kind of exaggerated accents, but just kind of normal people with Southern accents. Uh, and we get a, a different sense or a different vibe, a different kind of culture in play. And I don't think it's the only reason, but I think Burt Reynolds being Southern at that time when other movie stars were not, um, and and other movie stars were in fact kind of decidedly not Southern, you look at like Robert Redford or Al Pacino, uh, very kind of waspy and, and, and New York uh, ethnic, I guess we could say, um, that Burt Reynolds just offered something different and engaging, and he happened to be funny enough and charming enough to kind of follow up on that. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Of course, they weren't all, all of his Southern movies weren't necessarily comedies, though. We can think of Deliverance yeah. as the most obvious one. But uh, you're right. right. I mean, the, the, like you say, Smoking the Bandit and all these other films that uh, um, 
take place in that area. Now, did they tend to be the South in general, or were there were there areas that were particularly featured? I mean, I know a lot of them were road films, but uh, yeah. but uh, do we have representations of specific areas? Well, so like the the Smoking the Bandit movies, they kind of they range across the South, and they have the kind of traditional establishing shots where it says things like "Welcome to Arkansas." Uh, on the side of the highway. And so we just get little quick images of a lot of places, but then they do kind of settle down in places. Uh, Texarkana is one of the places that we kind of, we see the South. Um, in the in the chapter, one of the things that I'm really interested in is when, uh, when Burt Reynolds was starting out and he did White Lightning, which is a, a great piece of exploitation filmmaking. Uh, it was filmed on location in Arkansas. And so it's a, a look that you might not see otherwise. And then when he directed its follow-up, Gator, six, seven years later, that was filmed around Savannah, Georgia. And so that, again, has a very particular look. And both of those movies give a very large credit to the governors of the states for helping them film there. They got tax breaks, essentially. Um, but the, 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 the movie I'm most interested in in terms of bringing a, a different vision of the South is uh, Sharky's Machine, which is a cop movie that Burt Reynolds directed, and it's set in Atlanta. And Atlanta, I think, is, is really probably the most important city in the U.S. in the 1970s. It's, it's growing. It had the funny motto, the city too busy to hate. And uh, that's the world headquarters of Coke, and Hartfield becomes a, a regional hub airport. It's got some significant architecture, and that's one of the things that shows up in Sharky's Machine is that um, John Portman, whose uh, Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles is kind of the centerpiece of Frederick Jameson's uh, postmodernism, he also has a hotel in Atlanta, and it's kind of a, a showpiece, you know, major architectural landmark in a city, which, you know, kind of gives the city kind of a, a world standing. And... Burt Reynolds as the director kind of keeps returning to that. It's this big, important landmark building. Uh, but then he does the thing which I found most interesting, and it's really where the chapter started for me, is that he, he shows that in the South there is a season called winter, which if you, if you watch movies, you would not know that winter happens in the South. You would think that it's just summer all the time. But uh, it does snow in Nashville. We had uh, one time I was visiting uh, before I went to Vanderbilt, and it snowed eight inches in a couple of hours. The city was shut down, but it snows there. Uh, and so I think that's one of the ways that um, a movie can kind of open up people's uh, understanding of a location in, in a way that is kind of cool. Uh, so I think he just ranges across the South, but he does kind of set down every once in a while. So there's Atlanta, he has a Another exploitation movie called W.W. and the Dancy Dixie, Dixie Dance Kings. That's in Nashville. Uh, you know, he's in the kind of northeastern corner of Georgia in Deliverance. And then he got a little lazy and he made a lot of movies in like West Palm Beach, Jupiter, Florida, because that's where he lived. Right. And I think he did more of a long commute later in his, uh, his stardom. Yeah, he did have a, uh, you know, obviously he Florida was very big in his life. Both mm -hmm. in his uh, college, well, he played football, I think, in in Florida. Um, I guess you right. So yeah, I lived in Birmingham for about three and a half years, not that long ago, and I remember, you know, that was one of the things. To, it was my first introduction to the South, 
as well as same way with your I know Vanderbilt doesn't some people didn't believe that that was the true south and I was of course much farther south than you were but mm-hmm. uh, I there's no question that Birmingham I think of course Birmingham's a big city so that makes it a little different as well but uh, I was a little I was surprised about a lot of things living there for as long for the years I did and in fact we sort of miss Birmingham uh, but I remember hitting with we were there when the infamous snowpocalypse through that area, including Georgia, Atlanta. In fact, that Atlanta got a lot of publicity about it. It was the winter of 2013-14, and they shut down, and people were stuck on the roads and stuff. But we were going through the same thing in Alabama, in Birmingham, where the amount of snow. And of course, that's when the jokes always started. Oh, you folks don't know how to drive. I says, well. How often do we get snow and what kind of equipment do you think we have? So it's yeah, always right. one of those things that you can go, you can you can see how um, the South could be misunderstood by some folks. So, Yeah, and uh, the other thing when you say you know, Birmingham, Birmingham is a big city, uh, it's something that uh, Hollywood movies tend to imagine the U.S. South as kind of small towns mm-hmm. and plantations, and a lot of that is because it's pushed into the past. Uh, you know, a city shows up in a, a Hollywood movie set in the past, and it's like Atlanta getting burned down and gone with the wind. Um, and I think Nashville, the the things that that I miss about Nashville are actually things that still aren't associated with it in in cinema. You go down Mullinsville Pike, and it's just full of immigrant and refugee communities, and it's just and just absolutely wonderful. There's a, a place called uh, Las Americas where you can get pupusas, and that was just it was the standard Saturday going out as you go down to get pupusas. And I don't think anybody kind of just inherently associates Central American immigrants with the U.S. South. But they're certainly there. And I think they're, they're a thing that makes it even more interesting now as they're getting more and more diverse as, as cities. Yeah, we saw that in Birmingham, too, because we had one of the big issues. One of the big things in Birmingham was the or one of the main they're they're very big in you know their healthcare industry both the hospitals and the teaching, and so there were huge amounts of immigrants in Birmingham and so as you just point out the same thing you could find, it's unbelievable how much um, different types of food you could find because of the various immigration immigrant communities that were in the area and, and as you've pointed out people don't <laughs> people don't think about that all the time unless they're actually living in those areas so I could see where. Um, the Burt Reynolds films could have been very useful for uh, giving a, a different view and, and a more interesting view, especially as the areas were starting to grow. Yeah, I mean, they don't do, you know, they don't make a huge change, but I do think that they, they do something positive um, and that they, they actually say, well, actual people live here <laughs> um, uh, and they live here now. And it's not a place, and uh, the past isn't past, uh, but I think people are trying to kind of get on with the contemporary moment in Burt Reynolds movies. So one of your other chapters talks about suburbia, um, mm-hmm. specifically chapter three, getting around the suburbs and the blockbuster era's big hits. So obviously in this case, we're looking at uh, the big one, you know, in that era where suddenly, you know, we were getting films that were meant to make tons of money and be real big and mm-hmm. boisterous. And, and they tended to take place in the, uh, in the suburbs and you give a number of examples of that and so what what did you see as far as uh 
were were filmmakers trying to you know did it become the norm that they wanted to have suburban stories where where it was supposed to be the average suburban person going through these act you know whatever things were going on in the movie well as i say in the chapter that the thing that is kind of rough or, or, or puts up a significant hurdle if you want to set a movie in the suburbs is that the suburbs are kind of in the american imaginary i think associated with being boring um, and kind of comfort. Uh, and that's kind, of, that's kind of poison to a narrative. You need conflict. Um, but I, and I think some of the, the movies that I write about were kind of accidental hits. So something like The Bad News Bears, um, I think it's a fascinating document of the 70s and kind of what suburbanization means uh, to Southern California. But I think uh, it is that you want to try to appeal to as broad an audience as possible when you're making these kind of mass entertainment. A lot of these are kind of summer pictures. And so you know, by the, the 1980s, the majority of people in the United States live in suburbs. Uh, and so I guess you can't help but put, put them in the, in the suburbs. Uh, and I, I actually think that the uh, on the one hand, uh, you got the, the mid-70s with the bad news bears, and then you go into the, the mid-90s with Wayne's World. And I think those are the ones that are like a little, a little weird in interesting ways, um, and that there's a really strong class politics in Bad News Bears. Um, that um, these are the the working class and maybe even the kind of working poor uh, who are kind of against the, the Yankees, of course, uh, of the kind of solidly middle class suburbanites, and they're they're always kind of a step behind or a step outside of all the promises that suburbia seemed to offer. And then Wayne's World, to my eyes, kind of inverts everything, that the suburbs are a place of fun uh, and excitement, and, and the city is a place of, of, kind of crunching conformity, uh, which I, th I think is really kind of fascinating, um, and especially since my, my brother-in-law is from Aurora, Illinois, and... Uh, <laughs> I don't recognize the Aurora in Wayne's World from at least where, where Dave uh, is from. Uh, so I think it's a, um, in the end, you know, as a person who grew up in the suburbs, I, I kind of, I wish I would actually see a place that looks like the suburbs I grew up in. Um, I don't think that's happened yet, uh, but I think that there's all these weird attempts to kind of try and set any kind of version of standard kind of generic entertainments in the suburbs just to see what works i can think of there, there's two of the films that you talk about that i remember when i saw them and and they do it's another view of the sum of the suburbs and thinking of et and then poltergeist both of which were came out the same year and clearly were being filmed about the same time and they almost look like they took place in the exact same areas because you see mm -hmm. certain you know the the, the streets with the cul-de-sacs and the turnarounds and you just see them all over the place, and it just becomes a normal. In those cases, I would think those are examples of suburbs where everything's supposed to be safe, and then suddenly mm -hmm. something happens that completely changes everything, and suddenly it's not so safe anymore. And mm -hmm. um, so, and you've got a couple other examples of that too. And Amityville Horror is another one where everything's supposed to be normal, and suddenly it doesn't become normal anymore. Yeah, and especially in, in, in Amityville. Uh, I think Amityville is a little different because it seems like they have kind of 
succeeded and the safety is in real estate. So they should be safe as houses. Uh, and that kind of that investment that they have made turns out not to be good. Same uh, way with poltergeist. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I think what's, what's really important is that in all of these, like, like literally there's a cornfield in the backyard uh, of Elliot's house. I mean, they're at the very, very edge of suburban development. Same thing. They're still knocking over um, uh, burial sites in Poltergeist. And so, and I, I would say the same thing is actually happening in the Bad News Bears. Like we're, we're always on the ex-urban, you know, the very furthest extent of the suburbs. Uh, and that, uh, it seems like, well, if we can just get a little further away from the city, then everything will be fine. Uh, and there is that kind of false opposition between city and suburb. And they need each other. Uh, they're, they're symbiotic. Um, and so we just keep pushing further and further and further out. Uh, and it, it never solves the problem. <laughs> you also talk in another chapter about cities. Um, <clears throat> you're talking about medium-sized cities. And, and mm -hmm. in this case, we're talking about cities that are sort of in between what we, you know, some of these other examples, but the the one I can think of off the, you know, they talk about quite a bit is, is Pittsburgh, um, mm -hmm. which is uh, an interesting city for people who don't know much about it as far as how it has become particularly interesting as a city, both real in real, but then also in film, where it has become not only a place that movies are made, but then also has become a setting for films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that chapter actually started, there was, um, strangely enough, for, for an English department uh, group of graduate students, there was a big Super Bowl party one year, and I remember a graphic that showed there were more steel workers in Seattle than there were in Pittsburgh, and that there were more tech workers in Pittsburgh than there were in Seattle. Uh, and some of that is just a, a, a trick of where boundaries are drawn, obviously, but that... Uh, the identity that Pittsburgh has is, is of a steel town. And that's just not the case anymore. Uh, and that uh, the identity that Seattle now has is that it's a tech town. And that's certainly true, but there's more happening there. And so uh, I grew up outside of Chicago. And one of the great things is that when a band I liked would go on tour, I knew that they would come to Chicago. Uh, then I moved to Christchurch. And no one comes to Christchurch. This is too far. Uh, but growing up outside the second city, or maybe the third city now, those cities are allowed to have a lot going on. Uh, and we have the kind of imaginative space in our head for that. But these medium-sized cities, that people know about them, but they know one thing about them, and, and that's enough. Uh, and I think that kind of traps cities. Um, I kind of go into things like city branding and other kind of slightly gross things, but I think it's, it's it, it makes the chapter more interesting in that cities usually end up thinking about how can we show that there's more? And I think that's an interesting problem for films to deal with, that um, you can show things like, you know, personal growth uh, and kind of um, a reimagination of the possible if you go to these medium-sized cities, because while there's a sense of kind of being trapped in one identity, there is also the potential to escape that identity. Yeah. Pittsburgh is an interesting city, and it, it, it's a thriving city, which given where it is in the, in the, in the country, you know, in the north, mm -hmm. uh, as you point out, it used to be it was a steel town, and, and, and yet it is a different place now, but still 
doing well. And I consider it to be sort of in the same way as Atlanta, a city that reinvented itself and has has changed because of it in a positive way. Yeah. I mean, there was a, a history professor at Vanderbilt, uh, Professor Dickerson, who talked about how his family would only do laundry on Sundays because that was the day that your, your drawers wouldn't turn gray because all the dust would settle on it. Uh, that's certainly not the case now. <laughs> um, you can put your laundry out any day in Pittsburgh because it's, it has actually become a post-industrial economy. So quickly, I wanted to make sure we talk briefly about the last chapter in the book where you talk about uh, scenes outside of uh, America. Uh, and you particularly choose to take advantage of, of Disney films in this, in this chapter. Uh, what were some of the things you, you saw as far as uh, an American company, an American, you know, when you talk about America, Disney is pretty high on the things that people would think about. And yet they were, you know, they were using inter non-U.S. locations uh, for many of their live-action films. Well, I, I think kind of the easiest uh, entry point into that is that you can see the workings of ideology uh, that people conceive of Disney. I think rightly so, as kind of super duper American. Um, so much so that, that um, I, I went and saw. This is a weird thing about living in Brisbane. Uh, we were the first city outside of Europe to get the opera about Walt Disney that Philip Glass wrote. And that one is very much, that's based on a German novel uh, and it was put on in London and Madrid. Um, so it's kind of completely outside of the U.S. orbit, and yet it's about the kind of foundational myth of the creation of an American identity. Um, and then I think what's really interesting is most people when they write about Disney, they write about the parks and they write about the animated movies. And so I wanted to say, look at all these live action movies why does no one talk about them? Uh, the, the simple answer is that they're not very good. But I think in their, their disposability makes them really interesting because uh, it's kind of get them out there, get the people to see them, and they're basically they're the programming for you know, the wonderful world of Disney so that for four weeks you get these live-action movies that are just like you know, passable entertainment, and then you get that special animated feature. And so they, they kind of exist as uh, a fascinating contrast to the stuff that we're most used to. And so a lot of them are still just filmed on studio sets or in California, standing in as other places. But by, by kind of imaginatively going to these places uh, and by giving us kind of really poor versions of other people's cultures, they, um, they create uh, a chance for the the American ideology that we understand as being Disney-fied, uh, it, gives them, it gives that ideology something to kind of push against and triumph over. Uh, and this one actually comes out of, um, the chapter came out of watching um, In Search of the Castaways, uh, and it's kind of in its treatment of Maori. And you know, living in New Zealand, um, New Zealand culture is Maori culture. Um, and that's kind of maybe not understood as well when you don't live there. And so kind of looking into things like what were the tourism numbers you know, before the 90s, before uh, Rajanomics kind of brought in neoliberal economics to New Zealand. And that's just, people just didn't know anything about New Zealand. Uh, and so that's what originally said to me, well, I need to look at all these other movies and see how they deal with similarly, you know, in scare quotes, foreign cultures. And it, it's pretty consistent, pretty predictable. 
but I think it's a it's a pretty consistent way that even in these disposable pictures, that there's a really coherent uh, way of dealing with others, um, and it shows them that they're like, you know, maybe forty percent pretty good, uh, but they just don't have what the American ideology has, so they must be swept aside. Yeah, it, it, those the films you talk about with the Disney films, as you pointed out, I mean, it's mostly in the '60s, and it was right around the time that Disney was because it was very big into television, and mm -hmm. uh, they had to fill time, as you point out, and it was easier for them to just reshow films in pieces than than create entirely new content. So, yeah. uh, a lot of these films just happened to be made or were being made at the same time. So. Uh, it became, but they needed to be a little bit more exotic. They needed to make it something more interesting in order to try to stay with the Disney plant brand. So you show what they consider to be other parts of the world. Yeah, and then there, there's those, and that's, those are the ones I focus on. And then there's also kind of like the trained animal pictures and kind of kid movies. And so that's where Kurt Russell got his start. Um, and you get things like the Ugly Dachshund and the Million Dollar Duck. Um, and uh, there were moments when I was watching some of these movies, especially Monkeys Go Home, uh, where you reach this point where you, you find yourself saying, is this movie actually misunderstood? And is, is it really genius? Uh, and it, it is not. But I think in watching them over and over and over again, you can you can see that there is there's actually a really coherent worldview uh, that kind of appears throughout them. Uh, which I think is, is a testament to, even though they're just kind of cranking out content, um, it, it, the brand is strong. <laughs> of course, they're also, a lot of these, the reason why I think we hear about these, or people think of these films, especially depending on your age, is that the baby boomers probably see these with a large amount of nostalgia because that's what they were seeing when they were kids. And mm. these kind of movies, and I can remember, I mean, I grew up in the 60s and early 70s. I'm born in 56, so... I was in this era, and I, I, it's Disney was what you were just used to. Uh, it was part of the regular, not only in the movie theaters, but on TV. And, and so a lot of these uh, examples are things where we think of, as you say, you think to yourself, okay, am I, is it nostalgia I'm thinking of, or, is it, or were these really good? And the answer, as you point out in many cases, was no, it was nostalgia only because they weren't very good. I mean, there are moments. Uh, I, I do love a trained animal picture. Uh, and so uh, I do, especially ones with cats. I mean, that's that's a lot of hard work. And so, yeah, but but otherwise, no. I, I mean, I love Fred McMurray, but there's not much he can do with the script in Bunker Ash. Yeah, I think uh, I'd have to go back at some point and watch The Love Bug because that was a movie I remember fondly, <laughs> but I haven't seen it in a long, long time. And I can only imagine what would happen if I actually watched it. Oh, save, save save up a couple hours and it will be a, an experience. I watched that three times and then discarded everything I had to say about it. <laughs> so obviously, uh, you made you put together a, a collection. Do you feel like this modern modern cinema are they is have things changed because of CGI and other digital form ways of making films, or are we still seeing plenty of of movie making where uh, the geography can still be an important aspect of the whole thing. Well, I, one of the reasons I, I, I put the cutout date at 2000 is that I, I didn't want to have to kind of tackle digital cinema. Uh, but I think in, there's kind of, 
for all the possibilities that CGI offers, I think there is just something, and the movie that I kind of always turn to is, is The Fast and the Furious. I remember when we played that at the, the movie theater I worked at, and people were just eating that up with a spoon because there's something really incredible and exciting about seeing something that you know actually happened and is really there. And so guys driving cars real fast, you know, and almost crashing into each other is thrilling. And I think like actual locations that are not kind of uh, digitized within an inch of their life still have a lot of appeal. And they do kind of, they make, they make their return frequently throughout kind of release schedule throughout the year. Uh, and I do think that, you know, using digital tools for storytelling is, you know, I'm all behind that. Um, you can even, you know, you can, you can do things, you just, you can change the color of a place. And so it, it looks like Alabama, but there's something a little funny about it. Uh, so like the Coen brothers, when they made A Brother Where Art Thou, or even uh, Inside Alan Davis, like just by kind of changing the colors, you can, you know, you can change time and makes it a little bit unfamiliar. Uh, so I don't, I don't think that the importance of geography has disappeared at all. Um, and I think when, when you notice it, when the movie comes out, and you're like, oh, wow, this is something I've not seen. This is a new vision of a place I thought I knew. Uh, it can be uh, quite exciting. And just yesterday, I was, I was walking around the city of Vienna. Um, they're, they're showing um, a, a rehabbed print of Der Golem with live music accompaniment. So I was going to go buy a ticket. And there is a, a stable right in the middle of the city here. And there actually was a Disney live action movie, um, uh, the, the title of it escapes me now, about horses in Vienna. Uh, and so there is still this kind of inside the city, you could just do a simple tracking shot and all of a sudden we're in a stable. And it's moments like that. They don't have to be the big sweeping helicopter, although now it's usually a drone mm -hmm. um, shot that establishes a huge landscape, but it can just be a little moment in a transition between scenes or the background in a dialogue that kind of gives us uh, a different window into a particular location. It's funny. Uh, of course, you're not in, you haven't been in the United States living for a while, but uh, it has become the norm that every single car dealership in the United States ends their commercials with a drone shot showing their dealership. You know, and you can tell because they all are exactly the same. The drone goes straight up, and it's it's funny how suddenly that they've been drones have become ubiquitous with everything as far as visuals are concerned. I should say, in working with engineers, I shouldn't say drone. I should say uh, unmanned aerial vehicle. Uh, drone has too many negative associations, and you might not win a grant if you say drone. So, um, one of the big things in Australia actually is they use. Um, UAVs for uh, agricultural uses. Uh, so it's a uh, drones aren't all bad. They they kept on telling me that when they were working with me. <laughs> so um, obviously, then this book you've spent a large amount of time compiling this. Are you? Do you have mm -hmm. other plans to do anything more related with geography, or are you going off in a different direction, or or where are you going forward? Well, uh, well, I, I think uh, geography is kind of in the kind of larger rubric of an interest in space um, and kind of creations of space. Uh, so I have kind of a, an, a big kind of too big for one book project that's got two or three parts, which is about infrastructure and to a degree logistics uh, and, um, and genre films. So um, 
as I was talking about earlier, um, there's a, an article I wrote called Infrastructure After the Zombie Apocalypse. And so I'm interested in um, imagine the imagination of infrastructure in post-apocalyptic and dystopian movies and literature. Because uh, I'm interested in how we can imagine what the world will look like after it's done with us, more or less. Uh, so, and, and this lets me be really literal-minded again about movies uh, in a way that then opens them up to kind of show how the background of where they take place um, can get pushed to the foreground. So a movie like The Road, uh, it does make sense that The Road is still there because nothing grows. Because if, if plants could grow, the road as, as the highway that uh, he's walking along, it would no longer be there. And we can just look at Detroit. Um, there's urban prairies in Detroit because you get a couple of seeds and they get in the crack in the pavement and before you know it, it's completely split open. And so kind of using that very literal-minded, almost gotcha approach, uh, I think I can give it, it can give me some access into thinking about um, what happens after this version of our civilization fails um, and how can we kind of come to terms with um, fixing those failures. Um, the one, and I started thinking about this most clearly when I was watching The Postman, which I, I think it's a bum rap. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but I quite enjoy it. And there's actually, in the background of a lot of shots, just um, windmills. And they actually have electricity because it's running on wind power. And so it's just this little bit of set design and set dressing that opens up parts of uh, the film that I think are much more interesting than actually just the narrative. Well, I think infrastructure as a top, you know, I think you, you, it sounds to me like you've, you're, you've hit on a good overall topic of wherever, because I think infrastructure is such an interesting uh, concept and things that think, you know, the whole idea of looking at infrastructure and we all, are used to now hearing about infrastructure mostly for the negative reasons, but uh, yeah. so I could see where um, this could be an interesting uh, way to continue on with your your film study. Yeah, I think the reason we only hear about infrastructure in a negative sense is because the only time you actually register it is when it fails. And the point of infrastructure, and a lot of people writing about infrastructural studies write this, uh, the point is that it's invisible and that you just take it for granted. And so after the earthquakes in Christchurch, we didn't have plumbing for six months. And uh, the city solution was, was actually kind of awesome. They just put port at the bottom of your driveway. Uh, and so I would get up in the morning and you'd just see people walking down the end of their driveway to use the port uh, And then when, when we actually got you know, indoor plumbing back in the house, it was so exciting. And so I think it's, when you combine that kind of sensibility with, with kind of generic forms, um, and usually, you know, film studies people find generic forms interesting when there are these moments that escape convention, uh, I think those two put in combination uh, can be really quite fascinating. Well, good luck with that. It sounds interesting yes. all by itself, even on top of what you've yeah. already done. So hopefully if the book ever, if when you get it to a point where it's published, uh, which who knows when that'll be, obviously, I mean, when you the research phase is always uh, uh, the most interesting, but also the most tricky part of any kind of project like this. Um, yeah, I mean, I just have a pile of notes now, and eventually I'll, I'll actually think of something to say about them. Right. So hopefully, maybe someday we can talk about uh, that. 
Uh, but other than that, I really appreciate the amount of time you you gave me today. I mean, I think the the book is fascinating to me because of it just happens to be things that interest me as well. And and, uh, and many of the films you choose to, because of the time period you chose, uh, they were right in my you know period of real understanding. So. Uh, I hope people reach out for the book, uh, Imaginary Geography of Hollywood Cinema, 1960-2000 to 2000 by Christian B. Long. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today, and, 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 I, and I hope you enjoyed it. Oh, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. My great thanks to Christian. I hope his book gives you a new way to examine films. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.